All right, everyone, welcome back to another wonderful podcast. Uh, Jason here with Brian, as always, and today we are going to be talking about Jesus. We think there might be some things we've been assuming about Jesus and how that relationship is supposed to work. So we're actually going to take a bit of a journey into that thought process and ask, are there some things that we've assumed about the personality, the character of Jesus, but more so on have we assumed things on our relationship with him and how we're designed to relate to him, how we even can relate to him, if at all? So we're going to talk about that today. Brian, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. Coming off uh, Labor Day weekend. Hope all of you guys enjoyed your Labor Day. We just did a men's conference uh, a couple weekends ago, and some of this topic kind of came up, and it, it does tie directly into our four pillars. It ties directly into... Uh, a lot of the discussion we've had around suffering, around heroes, and all of that. And I thought that this is a good conversation point because I realize how many people have so many different views of Jesus. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi had a said this about Jesus. So he's a Hindu, and he said he had nothing but praise for him. And he described him as a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. So that was Gandhi's, and his final uh, point of that was he was a perfect act. And so when we look at, at Jesus, there is a lot of assumptions around him, and for the most part, across religious lines, everything, he was an innocent, powerful man that changed the world. So we know we that's the a basis of assumption from around the world then it becomes a little bit different when but he's the son of god but he's all man how do we relate to him and that's what we're supposed to have is this relationship with him but there's a lot of uh, assumptions that i think hinder what that could be so i thought this might be a good uh, idea that when we were talking earlier to really explore this and um bring to light who he is so we can relate to him in the way that he actually wants us to relate to him. I mean, it's really no different than any other relationship we have. If you assume things about someone, whether you're right or wrong, that's going to affect the dynamics of that relationship. And especially if it's someone that you already know and you hear something through the grapevine and you start to make assumptions. I mean, we all have that going on with our friends in the political, cultural climate we're in right now, there are some things you could assume about someone by reading a Facebook post of theirs. And you could come to the wrong conclusion based on those assumptions, but whether you're wrong or right, it's going to affect the relationship you have with that person. And as we've talked about this, um, and this is something that, that Brian, you and I have talked about for a long time, as we've talked about this over the years, I've, I've really realized that I had a lot of assumptions about how I was supposed to relate to Jesus, but, but also how he grew up, how he lived, how he grew. There was a lot of assumptions that I had, and I keep beating that word to death, but there was a lot of things that I just put into his story because of my upbringing, because of the, the traditions that I was in, that when I really stopped to think about it and study his life in scripture, it wasn't there. And I realized that that put a barrier between how I saw myself and how I saw him. 
and us relating together. Because if I have the wrong impression of him, like for instance, we, we talk about how, you know, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And that's absolutely true. But but I would take that and assume that he is somehow disconnected from the things that I have to go through because he's got this fully God card that he can play at any time. And therefore he can't actually experience what I experience, and he can't actually go through things that humans go through. And so that's one of the things that really, you could say, disqualified him, in my mind, from being able to relate to me. Or maybe even Jason, he he could go through it, but he already had a different outcome that was going to be. Yes. So even if he walked through it, I mean, come on, he can walk on water. So what was a storm exactly. to him anyway? Like those are some, is, is that kind of what you're getting at is there's, yeah, he may go through it, but there'd be a whole different outcome. And he kind of already knew that anyway. Right. It's like someone playing with the cheat codes to a game. Like you're not actually facing, you might be facing the same obstacles that I am, but you've got cheat codes or you've got these, these things that you can do that kind of take you outside of the, the rules that I have to play by because I can't do things the way that you do. And so there's, there's a, a bit of a disconnect there because I can only relate to someone and see them as an example of me so much if they're not in the, in the same situation I am. And we see this all the time with, with human relationships. I mean, we were just having conversations the last couple months about um, uh, some people doing, doing work in certain parts or certain cities with certain groups of people. And they were saying, if you can't relate to these people, having gone through what they've gone through, then there is a limit or a cap to how you're going to be able to influence them. It doesn't mean you can't have any influence, but ultimately the deepest influence is going to come from someone that has been through what they're going through and has come through it. Well, and in some aspects, we look at him as that he had a special privilege. He had privilege. Like, how can we relate to him? He had everything. I mean, come on. He comes from the God family. I mean... How, how can how can he connect with us in any possible manner when he comes from advantage? And so in some aspects, this is kind of the thing that was stirring with the Pharisees with him is they're basically saying, you think you're something and you're not. So let's destroy you. And mm-hmm. which is really kind of a great picture because he had a battle through all that, too. And, and I think that it kind of exposes this whole idea there is nothing that you're in the middle of that he did not have to go and deal with and 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 interact with and be a part of. And I, I think that's, hopefully we can explore, probably not all on this first podcast, but op- let's say over the next couple podcasts, let's to really kind of explore through how did he navigate this, how did he navigate that, and how really we can truly relate to everything he's experienced. I mean, for me, that's what, made such a huge difference in my perspective when I actually started to see that he wasn't just a like a floaty example of perfection going through life that never really had a chance of failing because it was all predetermined and the course was already set. So he never had a, a, a real risk of failure or a real chance of doing anything wrong because he was perfection and that was just how it was going to be. And if that's the case, then you don't you don't have to face the same things, but um, let's start looking at some of those things that we might have assumed about the life of Jesus, or even wh- why that 
why that matters to our relationships in general. You were talking about a psychologist earlier that was mentioning the same thing. Yeah, I was listening to this podcast and we were just talking, they're just talking about relationships and being open and uh, building strong core real relationships. And he brought up this really interesting, uh, there needs to be a baseline of shared assumptions. So for instance, I can master living in Thailand, I can master the Thai language. I can, I can master how to communicate my ideas. I can master hearing those ideas from other people. But when we start talking, even if we're using the same words and we understand those words, there has to be a basis of assumptions that have to be established first. So if you come from a cultural Buddhist view of life, I'm talking about culturally, I'm not talking about you pick and choose the Zen of life and now you've, I'm going to go to India and discover the Zen and all this stuff. You do not understand what it's like to be in a culture that is geared around this. The same is true if you grew up in a Christian culture and you're around church all the time, you, you knew the terminologies, there's an, an assumption there. But even that gets very strange the moment you go to another denominational group that all the words change, that you think you're talking about the same thing and, and you absolutely are not talking and arguments start building because there's we, we haven't had a shared sense of assumptions about where each person's coming from and the definitions, the terms, all of these things are adjusted. And so what is the critical point is you have to um, spend time being around that person to understand their assumptions of the world around them. So when you're communicating, you're like, yeah, I know they said this, or I know they did this, but I get why they did that. Like, I, I, I can see the perspective. Um, I shared this, I'm not sure if I've ever shared this on the podcast, but we had painters come to our house and they're getting ready to paint the house. And I was super excited. They were coming and right when they pulled up, I opened the door and started waving at them. And like 10 minutes later, I go to back and look out and they're gone. They left. And I'm like, I'm like, what did I just do that they left? Maybe they forgot something. So I get a call uh, about an hour later and said, so you don't want the painters to come? And I'm like, where are you coming up with that? I'm, I'm at the door greeting them, waving at them. And then it finally dawned on me. When you wave at somebody, you're saying, no, go away in Thailand. When you wave at someone in America, you're saying, hey, hi, how are you doing? You're, it's almost an open invitation. It's almost like, a, hey, I'm, I'm right here. Come on in. They, they saw it as, uh, I don't want you to come. So they left. There's a different hand motion where you basically put your, your palm of your hand face down and you, you draw your fingers in is the invitation to come in. And I just forgot. So here's a great example of we were communicating and we were understanding each other, but the assumptions were different about what that communication was and it produced an absolute opposite result. And so that's kind of that, that idea of shared assumptions. You know, a friend of mine had another great example he shared this last week. So at our, at, uh, at our church here at, at Serenity Village, they have this task force that they put together over the last few months to talk about, you know, issues in the community, um, whether it's politics, racism, whatever it is. And, and one of the things they did at one of their first meetings, there was, he said there was about 10 or 11 of them, and they each wrote down their answer to what is racism, like define racism. 
and they each had a different definition of even what the word meant. And so you can imagine having a conversation about something when we're not even defining the word the same way. And these are people that have all grown up in America. They're, they've, they've never lived outside of the country. It's, they've, it's not a cultural thing. Yet because of our different assumptions, we have different definitions to these words that we use. And I was thinking about this when even something simple, when Jesus talks about God being his father, I mean, I don't think he was using that word how most of us today use it, because at least for my, the vast majority of my life growing up, it was, it was kind of a, a cliche Christian thing you say. Yep, I'm, I'm a son of God, which means when I die, I'll get to go to heaven. Like that's, that's really what it meant for me growing up. But when Jesus was making this declaration, it meant something different. So, Jason, you're, you're not referring to the word father itself. You're referring to how Jesus may have been using father. Is that what you're... So, yeah, the, the concept of it. So not the definition of the word father, but when, when we say, okay, I'm a son of God, I'm a daughter of God, most people, the people in my circles growing up in, in you know, Christian world, it wasn't, it wasn't so much that we didn't view it how we viewed our relationship with our earthly fathers to where... You know, we have similar facial features. We have similar personality traits. Um, the the things that are, you know, if our parents, if our father owns a business, we can become an heir to that. And, you know, the example that I always go back to is uh, my best friend growing up, his dad owned the bakery in town. And, you know, we both worked there and spent quite a few of our hours after school in that bakery. And since he was the son of the baker, he had complete access to everything. He could go and do anything. He could eat anything and do anything because he was the son of that, of that person, which gave him different access to where I was the friend of the son. And so that granted me a different kind of access. And so the point I'm trying to make with that is I, it struck me when I see, when I read about Jesus referring to God as his father the anger and the extreme emotions that came up in people like the Pharisees or the Jews at the time when he said that. It wasn't just because he was saying an, a, a nice spiritual cliche. It's because he was actually actually using those words how they're meant to be used. He was actually saying, I come from God. I am of the God kind, even though I am also a man. And that that kind of rocked me because... I haven't been using that word or that concept, I guess, the way Jesus was using it. For me, it was some later on, this will have an effect, but it doesn't really have any effect right now. So later on, it'll mean something after I die, but right now it doesn't mean anything. And because my assumption was different, there was a disconnect in how I related to Jesus. That And that is a profound thought if you really think about it, because we... It, we're almost sheepish to embrace certain ideas. And and then you'll have someone who will take it a whole nother direction that almost twists it the other direction. Like you have the Christ consciousness uh, group that will just basically say, Jesus is just like us. We are exactly like him and we can have his consciousness. And all he was trying to show us is what we already had inside of us. And we already have that. So really, Jesus becomes more of a muted figure. Like mm -hmm. he was just trying to show us how to be what we are, but he really isn't somebody we connect to. He's just more of, oh, 
he opened the door. So now we know how to open the door and we can just go, go do it ourselves. And we have to understand that father son relationship that even that verse that you're bringing up when he says that, uh, he's my father, he never, he defines that. And maybe it's important that we define that, but yeah. And, and we will in just a second, but I think what's, what's really critical in all of this is I think sometimes we have to go beyond language and I'll, I'll be honest when I when I first came to Thailand and started we started working with the government and we were doing mentorship programs and um, the when the probationer the juvenile probationers have to go through our program and we're in three provinces and and it's grown like that and you might be saying to yourself wow you must know Thai really well and actually what I do know is some really good ties and I, I don't mean to make that don't go learn the language you don't need any of that but because I didn't know the language, I had to figure out a way to truly get to know the people we were working with in order to, to, do, to have any kind of effect. And actually, it's been more empowering to us by knowing the people versus knowing what they're saying. And I know that they, the two tie together, so don't jump from one side to another. They're both critically important. But because of that, I was forced to learn other things, their way of mannerisms, the way they handle themselves in a room, what's going on in a room. When facial expressions go a certain direction, something didn't go right, something did go right. Oh, they got excited over that. Wait a second, I'm not meaning that. So you're, you're tra having someone translate it, but you're now being able to observe everything else going on and you really learn protocols and their baseline of thinking because you're forced to use other things besides just a definition. And I think that's really where our world is, but it's almost like our world doesn't want you to know a person. They want you to know the terms. And it's almost a, a division in and of itself. It's like a deliberate division that if you say the wrong word, if you say the uh, a person, if you say an idea, immediately you're categorized into something. And now that's where the group is. But our whole platform is about the individual. Jesus was about the individual. And it doesn't, and again, go back and listen to unity versus conformity. We need each other. You can't do it alone. But, yep. but there is a, a flow with that. So my point with that is the moment you sit down and actually have to get to know someone from their perspective and you have to work with them and you have to get through uh, life or you have to do something with them, the terms become maybe not obsolete, but they don't matter to the same level. Quick story, the lone survivor Navy SEAL, when he kind of finally was able to get out of the firefight and he's the last one left and he has all these injuries, I mean, major body injuries. Um, I, I forgot what it was, but he couldn't walk and he had to drag himself and he's at this riverbed, and all of a sudden, this Afghani man came and met him at the riverside, and the soldier's about ready to shoot him because uh, I'm, I'm going to lose my life because you're Afghanistan and I'm American soldier in your field. And the man didn't do it. He actually took him home. He actually cleaned him up, protected him. And culturally, once he brought that soldier into his home, his home had to protect that soldier. So when the other Afghanis that were similar would come, he knew he was risking his life because now he's created a loyalty to this soldier the moment he did that act of inviting him into his house. 
Well, those two men at the end of the at the end of their terms or war became more than best friends. Something different bonded them together. The Navy SEAL who's a lone survivor, sorry, I can't remember his name, uh, the this Afghani man that that rescued him would come and visit him in his ranch. And they would go shooting and they would spend days and hours together just in fellowship, and neither of them knew each other's language. Hmm. But they knew each other. And I think if, if that is just something really powerful. So I, I think in one of the contexts of this, words are very important. Words are critical to what we are. But there has to be a baseline of understanding and assuming about that individual speaking for those words to truly have the weight and the relationship. That's kind of the big picture maybe we could lay out before we start going further in all this. Right. I think you have to understand that because if you if that's not a central concept, then what we're what we're kind of used to doing is learning how to repeat the same words because we think that the same words brings us to the relationship. When the words are just meant to, I guess, be a tool that facilitates that relational connection. But the words are not the words are not the relationship in themselves. Like everyone's great at reciting the Lord's Prayer. Everyone can recite, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they and all these things. And and at times we get into a mode of repeating those, thinking if we do them 10 or 12 or 78 times, then something's gonna click. And maybe there's maybe that happens for people at times. But I love that story because it just points out that the relationship is not based on getting the words right. And I think that there's times where we've we've had that be a, I guess, a stumbling block in how we relate to Jesus. So what would you say is is a way that we start to kind of get away from, okay, let me just try to repeat the words that Jesus did or repeat the actions that Jesus did, and then I'll feel like I can relate to him and move to that that deeper level, I guess you could say. Well, I think there first needs to be an understanding, even as we're talking about words, that the relationship is more important than the words. It, you actually can't separate the words from the relationship. So I, I don't I don't want it to sound like we're switching one's more important than the other. No, they're wor- both working <laughs> harmoniously. But if you do one without the other, you're, you, you won't get the essence of the assumption. So I, I think that is an important point. So when we look at Jesus, and he's, that was John chapter 5 that you mentioned that verse. Jesus just heals a man that was at this pool. Then he comes in. Now people are mad at him because he did that, and they want to stone and kill him. And because it was on the Sabbath day. Again, he didn't act based on the assumptions of the culture and the legalism of that custom of that time. He didn't act. Therefore, he was an evil man, and so he needs to be destroyed. But they didn't know. They didn't catch the spirit. Um which maybe that's the word we're actually trying to work. You you get to know the spirit of a person. So then the words and the, and who they are start flowing together. So he comes back and he said, um, they want to kill him. And Jesus answered and said, I, I say to you, and this is in John 5, 19, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. So this is a very important point when he's discussing what a father-child relationship, because he made this this comment that my father has been working until now, and now I have been working. So in other words, oh, so you're saying you're, you're God because you declared him as father. 
But now he's going into defining what that relationship actually looks like to him. And I think this is really important is I think we miss that Jesus had to build a relationship with God the Father from a human perspective. The need of a human to need to know their source. He had to build that relationship. He says the son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the father do, and I think this is a very important piece, is that Jesus was an individual that acted, but he couldn't do it without his father. Yet him and his father are one. So you see this 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 bonding. You become one with the person the moment you can connect on all levels and you want to see from their view, like their view becomes important, your view becomes important, and you really start having a hard time separating who's doing what in that scenario. And so he goes, but what he sees the father do, and I think that's really critical. Now, there's another verse that says, I only do what I see and hear my father do. But I, I think this is really this is really important in this first part is he had a view of God, his perception of God, his assumptions of God, how he perceived him, how he looked at him. Um, those were being built over his time. And now he says, I only do what I see my father do. In other words, I'm not doing these things on my own. I, I'm not even housing all this information. My father is actually inputting this information into me. He's actually revealing things into me. And he says, and then I do things in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. So that's the second part of this relationship that was established in Jesus and the father. And we'll get into, we'll probably touch in about his early childhood of how he got to this point because Jesus still had to get to this point. And then he says, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. So this, this really opens up this really amazing picture. He was confident he's going to go do greater things because the Father is going to show him greater things. But at that moment, he only knew what he knew. So he needed to go back and the Father would show him new things and then he would do new things and things would happen. And it was, it was almost more his walk on this earth was him and his Father showing him things and then he would go do them versus he had this spiritual download of a of god ai that was just operating in his brain and he just knew everything he didn't need to google search it he just he just knew it but that isn't what was going on with jesus in his life so it becomes important that jesus had to learn in the same manner that as those that receive jesus you're born again your heart becomes clean you become sanctified and holy now we are walking in a similar pattern to how Jesus walked. Now, just lose all of your conceptions of what that means and how we deal with life. The reason you're having an assumption, some of you out there, is because you have a wrong interpretation of what this is actually uh, meaning. So hopefully we can peel back those assumptions and get into that idea. Let's look at some of that. So, because that's really profound when you when you put it that way. I For... For me, at least, and I know a lot of other people, we've grown up with that idea where Jesus showed up, and when he was born, you know, we've got some gray area, maybe in early parts of his life, but basically during his entire ministry, he was walking around with all the answers for everything that he was ever going to do, 
And so nothing ever surprised him. Nothing caught him off guard. He didn't have to think about anything. He didn't have to learn anything because he just, he was, it's really robotic when you peel back and get to the bottom of it, how we think of Jesus. It was very robotic. He had his scripted answers for everything, like some online customer service rep. He just had his script that he repeated whenever, you know, problem A came up, you go to section B and here's your answer for that. And there was, there was no, there was no varying from that. But if we look at it, as him growing and walking in that active relationship, now I can actually start to relate to him a little bit because none of us, if we're being honest, feel like we have all the answers. Might be the most obvious thing ever, but we all feel like we're growing. We all feel like we are learning in this journey. So maybe we can look at some examples of his life where where he actually experienced what it was like to to hear his father's voice, to have to walk in that, and what it actually meant for him to experience all those things. Yeah, so maybe just hop hop into how he was born and the environment he was born into. And and let me just throw one one thing out there, because I kind of want to, if we could tie into who we are to what he was doing and start building that relationship even during this podcast, I think it's going to add a lot. So just in the idea when I said that, I'm going to, when Jesus said, I'm going to do more marvelous works because the Father's going to show me them. The Father shares everything with me. There is some out there that says, well, see, we don't know some of that stuff till heaven. So now, again, there becomes that disconnect the moment he even said that. And so I think it's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, none of the rulers of this age understood it. For had they, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Rather, as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Right? So we, we've heard that. Like, we just, we just don't know. But then Paul goes on in verse 10. But God has revealed it to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. In other words, that is no longer true for you. Once you believe in Jesus and you become part of him and you're born of him and you have his spirit, he is now, you're now in that same scenario that Jesus was just saying here. Now, I'm not saying you're the sacrifice for the world. And I'm not saying your authority is above Jesus. And again, that becomes a different conversation. I just want you to see that the th- arguments that we could disconnect from Jesus, actually those things have been given to you as well. And that becomes very important. So going back to his early childhood. Well, I mean, to be honest, I would I would see the story of him when he was a, a young child in the temple and him teaching other people um, in in the temple as a kid. And then his his parents are looking for him and he says, well, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house and, and all those things. And right there, just the way that whole story of his life is, is kind of laid out, it, paints this, it painted this picture in my mind of even as a little kid, he already knew everything. And so at that moment, at least, maybe he had some growing before then, but in that moment, he knew everything. He knew he was the son of God. He knew what kind of miracles he was going to do. He knew he was bringing salvation and all of these things. And so anything after that is, is basically just running on, on default. It, it, 
it was just like everything had been recorded, everything had been planned, and hit play, and his ministry plays out over the rest of his life. That's how it always seemed to me growing up. Well, how about we'll do this fun little exercise, Jason, of tell me what your assumptions are about the content, about the environment, and about that scenario. What what are you assuming? Um, I'm assuming that he's in uh, in a in a temple with a bunch of teachers around him, um, and he just shows up, and they're teaching the kids, and he, as a kid, starts correcting them and instructing them, correcting their theology, correcting their um, the way they're looking at scriptures, and um, knowing that he needs to go, but not going because he knows what he's doing is more important than what his parents want him to do, and he's already kind of in this superhero ministry mode. It is very interesting how many stories we've heard and we've grown up culturally knowing something, but then when we actually go back and read it, how it can change a perspective and how we have almost ignored what is actually being said about that. In considering how he was in the temple, in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, it says, Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So I think it's very important to kind of take a look at that. He was not doing any one of those things. He was actually doing the process and learning and hearing them and asking questions and prodding. And there was a hunger to know more. And whatever his response was to the people, they were astonished that he got it, like he understood it. So if we put that story now back into that perspective, how much does that change of how he developed? In other words, he had to go learn. He had to go ask questions. He had to go pursue more information. And I think that's a really great picture uh, for the first part um, of what you're talking about. But then let's also flip over to the cultural consequences that Jesus had to grow up in. Jesus is at 12, 13 years old, you become a man. So we don't have, they did not have adolescent time. Like we didn't have our four years of college while you're still a child, and then you start life as a as an adult. You were an adult when you're 13 years old. So you had bar mitzvah, it was your calling out, you're doing this. So they are also at a gathering that the whole nation was coming together for this celebration. So everyone was there. We also assume that the temple was set up like our normal church, where you go sit in the pew, you're ushered in, you're given the bulletin, you sing your three songs, you take the offering, and then the pastor speaks for 45 minutes. But if you're a kid, at sometimes you go in for praise and worship, sometimes you just go straight to your Sunday school class, and now you're sitting in with a teacher, just like a Monday morning classroom. They tell you a story, you get to play with some game, you may do an activity, and then you go home. But you're not there to talk, you're there to be taught. The temple was not set up like that. It was set up that the rabbi would read a scroll. So here's probably the better way to picture this. You're coming into adulthood, so you're not the only 12-year-old sitting in this arena. You're with the, the men. You're, you're learning to become a man in this environment. So imagine you're in a small group where a topic comes up and everyone's interacting 
around that topic. So we don't know if he actually was teaching them a new idea. We don't know if he was just bringing to life what he saw when he read that, but he captured their attention. And this was normal. And so he's about doing his thing and interacting with that. So if you put that into context, he wasn't the only 12-year-old kid in there. This was normal cultural things, but because of his words and the way he communicated, he taught, he spoke differently, and that captured their ears. So in the sense he was teaching them, it was probably like, okay, where did you come up with that idea? Well, da-da-da-da-da. Well, where'd you come up with that idea? Da, da. And he would walk through his thought process. That right there would be a more cultural, realistic thing that was going on with Jesus. How does that change the assumption of what he was doing inside that temple? I mean, for one, it makes it less of a a fantasy fairy tale scenario, like it's some kind of scene created in a movie, and it makes it more of a normal, everyday, going through life occurrence, where it's, you're in a situation, and by the nature of who and what you are, this comes out of that situation. Not, okay, you need to be looking around for a moment to stand up in front of a crowd and grab everyone's attention and and start you know, talking at them or screaming at them or something like that. Like you're not looking for something to do in order to stand out. You're going through the world and the culture around you and what you are, your default, your state of being is going to stand out. And so really the only thing is he was, he just let that happen. It's a much more natural outflow, I'd say. Well, and I think the other thing is they were trained in an environment to learn how to argue scripture. I don't mean being argumentative towards each other, but they were they were taught they were taught how to wrestle through scripture and how to argue with each other. It is part of the real reason why there was a separation of the men would go in one area and the women would go in other another area. There's some cultural things to that that isn't sexist. It was just how men interacted around things. And so you would wrestle you would wrestle through that scripture. So you were given permission to speak. He didn't just like take over and uh, an angel came down, blew a trumpet, and this this orb floated around his head, and he just began to declare these oracles. No, he's still learning these things, but there was something much deeper, and it, and part of that was being reinforced by his parents. Like we had this messenger, you are the son of God. This was you're a miracle birth. But I don't know if he fully captured all that. But what he was doing is Joseph or someone began teaching him, God is your father, God is your father, God is your father. And so with that, he's learning his father. And so when Mary comes and is disappointed that he's not there, which you would say two parts, what kind of mother leaves and, and you get halfway down the journey or however far they got and you realize, where's Jesus? So it wasn't, he probably was not hanging out with her the whole time. He, she assumed he was with some other family member or some other part of the group. So him being away was not a big issue. But when she realized he wasn't at all there, she went back and he's like reminding her, you know, I have to be about my father's business. And so that would be a normal cultural thing that the father would bring the child out into the world and learn how to interact and learn how to be in these environments and learn the community and, and learn all those things. That would be a normal father doing that. So there is a statement being made, but what's being clarified of who his actual father is, because it wasn't Joseph bringing him into that. God was bringing him into that. And so, yes, there is some divine things that he learned, but we actually have those same tools now 
in our current as a as a born again believer because Jesus is trying to teach us those things too. So there's still a comparativeness, um, but not all of that was so abnormal. So do you think that 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 should change a lot of it for us? So all a lot of what he did, maybe you could say, wasn't as as Hollywood as we make it to where it's like, man, this situation can only happen if you scripted it out. And it seems like this, this wild story because it's so far out of our culture. It's so far out of anything that's normal to us. But for him, many times it was just going about his business and not that it was like a, a lazy, he didn't have a laziness about him, but we look at it sometimes as he was constantly looking for the big moment the big highlight of the movie moment, and he just keeps hitting those those moments all the time because he's he's just on this mission for those big shocking reveals and those moments. But maybe it was more of he's going through life and culture, and it's not unusual, it's not abnormal for him to be in this situation or this situation. But who he was came out, and that's what made it abnormal. Because if I look at things that way, it's actually a lot easier to relate to someone like that. It's a lot easier to relate to someone who has an identity. They're walking through the world that they're in, and it comes out. Well, and I think sometimes Hollywood and just maybe even our perception of how we talk about him. And let me just say, he he is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of God, Lord of Lords. He is the Son of God. He is deity. He is one with the Father. But he has this. He's taken on this form of us to bring us into that, and so. None of this cheapens who he is. What it should do is show how much God loved us that he's willing to put himself into the lowest form of life so we could connect and be raised up. That's the humility that we should be experiencing that. But it doesn't cheapen him. And and none of this is to make us more confident and him just a normal guy and it's not that. I would I would add to that and echo it. So none of it is meant to make him seem less godly or appear as if he's, you know, only three quarters godly. N- none of that. Obviously, we cannot put him... You, ca- you can't think too highly of Jesus. And we're not trying... I'm not trying to, to take any of that away from him. But I will say it's interesting that more often than not, the surprise that happens to people around him is not, oh, wait, you're just a man as well. The surprise is, we know you're a man. We see you as completely human and completely a person, but now we see that you're also the son of God. That's more of the surprise for them. It's not so much, because we would kind of look at it the other way, I'd say. We see Jesus as 100% God and holy, and we're surprised at his humanity. It almost seems like it's the opposite for people that he interacts with. Boy, that's a great perspective, Jason. Boy, we should, we should just take and capture that just for a moment of, in his time when he walked, who do you think you are? You're not the son of God. We now say, you're the son of God. You never really were human like we were. That perception needs to run through this whole entire idea of how did the people view Jesus in that time when he came, not as a son of God, not in any closeness. And that should bring us some some powerful realities as a believer. And, you know, the other thing, too, is um, Isaiah, when it was prophesied of who would come, Isaiah 53, 2 through 3 says, He grew up 
before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no stately form or majesty to attract us, no beauty that we should even desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Think about that is Jesus. I, I think our brain has a hard time picturing him that way. And so, but it's important that we remember that image. But I will tell you, if you know that image, you'll really understand what he is as the son of God. And it'll it'll create a deeper love between the two. I think that's where things need to start for a lot of us when it comes to being able to relate to him and and rethinking or un, unlearning some of these assumptions we've had. Because that's ultimately where the relationship has to be rebuilt. As you talked about at the very beginning, to get to those shared assumptions where we're looking at things the same way that he did. Because it's, otherwise, it's going to be really difficult to have a meaningful relationship, but then also to walk in a meaningful relationship and actually see him for who he is and then see ourselves for who we are. Well, just even ponder that idea of, well, how am I supposed to go about life from where I'm at when I'm despised? Right. Where do I go from there? So everyone in this world that feels despised, disenfranchised, um, left out, that was Jesus. But he didn't approach life from a place of malice. He didn't approach life from a place of, I'm going to get even with you. I'm going to prove you wrong. He didn't approach that. Now, he knew he began growing and knowing who his enemy was, but it wasn't people. But people adopted the ideas of the enemy, so there would be a clash there, but it wasn't really against the people. It was against that thinking and the source behind them. Well, he dealt with that with his community, but also with his family and the people in his city to where, and how many of us can relate to that, where it's, man, you've changed so much over the last handful of years, and the people closest to you just cannot see that change and can't see the new person you've become. I have gone through that, and it's not an easy thing to walk. There's times you have to distance yourself from people that have been very close to you because for their own reasons, they refuse to see you as anything different than than what you were when you were a kid or in college or in your 30s or when whatever it is he had to go through that as well. He can relate to that exact feeling. Like the more the more of those examples I see, the more it's just like, I really can relate to this guy. You said something, that idea that like when we're around people and you begin to change, and it's usually for the better. There's sometimes for the worse, but let's just say for the better. And and you start breaking that norm of how they viewed you. Maybe they, they got yeah. to like you the way you were in this realm. And then you start changing and you grow you grow beyond it. And then they start almost not liking you and, unrela- and un- not being relatable to you. And I think this is a, the best picture that if you look at someone and you begin seeing how God views that person, when they change and they grow, it's not like, oh, you've changed so much. It's more of like, Man, you really are becoming what you really what I've always seen in you. Exactly. That's a different kind of relational concept. And that's how exactly. Jesus views us, yeah. but we also have to see Jesus in that too. Is that in that humanity, he's emerging in what he really is. And so the change shouldn't be shocking, but we have to know he still had to come out of that whole caterpillar mess 
into the butterfly. Closing up with that idea with Jesus teaching in the in the in the temple, um, it really was profound his confidence. So what was what was put into him? So there is though still that truth. Like he had this confidence, and his words his words captured, but he spoke in a manner that they understood. It's like he was growing in knowing what their assumptions were about an idea, but their perception of the assumption was being enlightened or challenged. So Jason, with that, when you, when we're I know we're just kind of in these beginning stages of kind of going through some of these ideas. How, why would it be critical for us to understand what Jesus was and how people viewed him, but also how he viewed us? Like in Hebrews, it talks about he, he experienced everything, everything we've ever experienced, yet without sin. And he was, it's, it goes on to say that he's not ashamed to call us brethren. So here's Jesus looking at bringing out himself and who we are in relationship to him. So as in John uh, 16, I believe, says that his desire was that we would have the same fellowship that he has with his father. That's really powerful. So the same fellowship that he has with the father is what he desires for us to have. And in order for us to have that, we have to have a baseline of re- relationship, a, a dog can only be so compatible with the master. As much as that dog will do whatever you say, you can train it perfectly, it will cuddle up to you, it'll do whatever you want, it will make you feel good, it will keep welcoming you every time to the, you come you come home as if you can leave and then come back 10 minutes later and it's just as excited to see you. That's not the relationship that God has with us. That, because they're two different kinds of pe- of things. This is, you have to be of the same kind. And we could get into later about authority and th- those type of things, because that's, that's the defining differences. But within the general relationship, we're of the same kind. Well, I think that's where it has to start. Without that, you're you're honestly, you're likely to be just stuck in this spiritual cycle of, feeling like you're not hearing the voice of God, feeling like you're not connecting with God, feeling that you're distant because you're you're constantly trying to relate from the wrong position because you see you see God as something because of your assumptions, you see Jesus as something because of your assumptions, but almost more importantly, you see yourself because of your assumptions in the wrong way. And because of that, all the lines of communications don't go through. Like if you're so busy sitting there thinking, woe is me, a pitiful sinner, then I'm not surprised you're not hearing the voice of God because he doesn't talk to that person. He doesn't talk to you as if you are some low-down, filthy sinner because you're actually not that anymore. But the enemy would love nothing more than to keep us in that mindset and that perspective, which is, which is ultimately what we, what we fight against, that renewing of the mind and seeing things in that, I would say, that proper perspective, that proper light. And so it's, you know, for me, that is what, that's what changed my, you can say, my spiritual walk was seeing that new perspective. And that's actually what I, what I can um, point to as being the foundation of my relationship with God, because I've had relationships, um, or I should say a relationship with God based on a different understandings and different assumptions. And it just wasn't, it wasn't a good life. It wasn't, 
it wasn't terrible. I did great things. I didn't do very many bad things. And so by all outward appearances, things were good, but there was, I could, there's just something that wasn't what it should be. And that held me back from a lot of things. And when that changed, everything else followed. I fully agree. We need relatability. We're, everyone's looking for a relationship. And if, if Jesus seems disconnected to that, it's hard to bring us to the source of knowing the Father if we don't have that, that peace. We'll begin looking to people and other sources of information to begin gathering the thing that our heart craves. Is First of all, when you believe in him, you become a new creation. So you become something new. So in a sense, you're not like you're already of, of him. And then he just kind of uh, does something and you're like, oh, okay, I guess I am good. No, you, you have to have a transformation point of letting go of what, what you were and taking on what you are. But we have to know what we are now. So your, your entire Christian life cannot be of not being what you were. The only way for you not to be what you were is for you to know what you actually are. So that's a critical point in this. Second, you brought this up, and I, I think it needs to be highlighted again. Um, the, when Jesus came on this earth, he had to reveal that he was the Son of God. He didn't really tell people he was, but based on what he did and how he acted, people knew. And that's what changed things. So he went from a humanity point and he revealed that he was the son of God, that it was a miracle to believe on him. But in our current day and age, we look at Jesus as the son of God and we kind of don't relate to him from the human point of view. So it's almost like he has to prove he's still human. And how do I know that? Because the disciples, after he ascended into heaven, he comes back and shows up in the room. And they're like, a spirit's here. Like they, they thought it was like a spirit. And Jesus says, no, I'm still Jesus. And he eats with them, shows them the scars, and he eats food. And then he passes back through the wall. So I don't know what he's become. I, I, I don't want to get all that, but he was still a man and he's still all God. He's glorified. He's perfected in his humanity as far as his physical body goes. And now what he is, it's all blended into one, but he still has a body. He still can eat. He still can function. So Jesus had to reveal that he is all God to his disciples. And he has a human body that is perfected, which we get when we are, after we die and we're resurrected. We still get a physical body, but it is purified. So it's not that he came back and revealed all of his flaws of humanity. He is all human perfected and the son of God. But that is our journey. So our insides, our mind, our spirit, that's all with him. And there is a time our body will come along. But when Jesus walked this earth, it's important to see, wow, I can relate to that because he went through all the same stuff. Yeah, it's it's almost as if when he was here, he was 100% human and then people had to piece together the fact that he was also the son of God. But now we look at him as 100% God and we have to throw some pieces of humanity on him and we just end up with this this weird collage and a misrepresentation of who he is. But I mean, we're, we're going to keep uh, continuing this conversation in later episodes and uh, we appreciate you guys being with us in that conversation and I hope it's challenging for you. It's challenging for me. And, you know, as I said, this is stuff that 
Brian, you and I have talked about for years some of these topics, and it still today challenges me and stretches me. So we appreciate all you guys listening in. Um, We'll be back next episode. Until then, stay in the fight.